Thanks for downloading this week's podcast from Crossroads. We are glad you took the time to listen. As you tune in today, if you need encouragement or prayer, please reach out to us by texting 864-288-1626. Or you can find out more information at our website, hope at crossroads.org. Spread the word to your friends. Let them know they can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Videos of our messages are also online at hope at crossroads.org. And now, Here's this week's podcast. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Joey. Thank you, worship team. Good morning. If you have your Bible, if you'll turn to the book of Psalm, Psalms, you can, uh, depending on what kind of Bible you have, you can almost open it the halfway point and it should fall open close to Psalms. Uh, we're starting a new series this morning for the month of August where we're going to be looking at a select psalm, and today we're looking at the very first one. And while you're turning there, let me, let me just say, uh, to Joey's point, praising the Lord is easy when you recognize that there is a difference, a church family, between praising God for who He is and thanking Him for what He's done. We sometimes get to two of those uh, mixed up, and there are a little bit of similarities, but we, we praise God for His character, for who He is, because He's awesome. He's majestic, He's holy, all those great big churchy words that sometimes we don't know what they mean. He's omnipresent, which means God can be everywhere at one time. I don't understand it, I can't explain it, I just know that I can be praying here, and I can have my friends who are right now in Malawi, Africa, and they can be praying, and somehow the Creator of the world hears all that at the same time, which is amazing. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. He's amazing. So we can praise Him uh, regardless of our circumstances. Because some of us are in some pretty dire uh, circumstances. And maybe even this week you've been in some challenging circumstances. As I, as I was thinking about that and thinking about this psalm today, um, the very first verse says, Oh, how blessed. Psalm 1.1, 1, 1, oh, how blessed. And the word blessed there means, oh, how very happy. I don't know about you, but I can watch our world and I can watch the news and social media feeds and it doesn't look like there's a lot of happy people in the world right now. Matter of fact, some people might even say, where are the happy Christians? Because some of us who profess to know Christ look like we're recovering, as a pastor friend of mine says, look like we're recovering from hookworm treatment. I mean, I know the world is oppressive and it's hard and it's challenging, but if we as the people of God can't occasionally smile and have joy in our lives and joy in our hearts, why would the world want what we have? But there is a difference between what the Bible says when it talks about happiness and joy and what the world talks about when the world talks about happiness and joy. Because, see, happiness according to the world is based on our circumstances. So if we get an unpleasant doctor's report, like my mom is facing and some of you are facing, it's easy to all of a sudden be unhappy according to the world's definition of happiness. But if we truly believe what the Bible says, the psalmist also said that the joy of the Lord is our strength, then we will know that joy is a lot different than happiness. So I know that I could give you kind of what a lot of pastors and preachers are doing in today's world, which gets a crowd sometimes and say, thanks for coming. Today I'm going to give you the top three steps to build a happy life. 
And we would have people flock to hear how to be a happy, have, have, have a happy life. And the Bible tells us in this psalm actually how to do that. It's a little bit deeper than a three-step plan. Because in our world, we kind of like simple to-do lists, especially if you're a type A personality. But building a relationship with God is a lot more challenging than that. Uh, if you have been married at any length of time, or you've been in any kind of relationship or friendship, you know that those things are challenging and sometimes difficult. Some people have told me, uh, you know, I'd just rather just stay at home and be a hermit. Well, that's not how God wired us. God wired us and made us for community. And as challenging and as difficult as that is, it's that difficult process of having community and even having sometimes disagreements that sharpen us and help us discover who we are and more importantly helps us discover who God is. I don't want a group of people that always agree with me. It'd be great. In church life, it'd especially be great if everybody always agreed 100%. But sometimes those challenges and sometimes those disagreements sharpen us and help us at least stop and take inventory of our lives. And so David here says in this very first psalm, he gives us some instructions about how to have not just a happy life, but a joyful life. And he's going to show us in this psalm the difference between those people in the world who the Bible describes as wicked, which basically means living away apart from God and living their lives apart from God, and those who live a blessed life, who live their lives trying to honor God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd like to have the blessed life. I would like to have things... Uh, not just I'm not saying all good things happen to me. That's not necessarily a blessed life. I would like to know that the hand of God is on my life. That's a blessed life. And David the psalmist gives us some instructions about how to do that. So let's just read it together. Psalm number 1, just six short verses. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Then he changes. There's a transition in verse 4. He says, ah, but the wicked, they're not so. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So there's two groups of people that he's talking to in this psalm. Let me just tell you this morning, everybody in this group, preacher boy included, is in one of those two groups. There is no other group. We're in the blessed group or we're in the wicked group. We've chosen one of those uh, paths to follow. So let's kind of dissect this psalm and look at it. I love what he says when he says, oh, how very happy or how, how very blessed. Actually, the Hebrew word there is a plural word. So the way we read it in our modern translations, we've lost a lot, by the way, in a lot of our modern translations. Even in the King James Version, we've lost a lot of what the original Greek and Hebrew language says. And if we put it in the real modern day language, it actually would say, uh, oh, how happy is the man, oh, how many happies the man has. As if you could go to Walmart or Target and pick, I'll have three happies, please. Wouldn't that be great? And you could just put those in your pocket, and as you went through life, if, you know, if somebody cut you off in Woodruff Road in traffic, you could just go, 
I just took a happy. I'm good now. I'm good. I'm good. That's kind of what David is saying is, oh, how many happies we will have, how many blessings we will have if we'll not do some things. And by the way, when he says, how blessed is the man, he's basically saying, how blessed is the man, how blessed is the woman, how blessed can you be? In in other words, it's open to everybody. Some of us have fallen for the lie of the enemy that we can't be blessed or we can't have joy or we can't have happiness because we don't deserve it or maybe something in our past dictates that, well, I can't really enjoy the blessings of God because of of something that's happened in my past. David is saying all of us have access to be blessed and joyful and happy according to the Bible's definition of happiness. It's available for everybody. It's not reserved for a special class of people. It's not reserved for the professional ministers to just be blessed. Every child of God, David is saying, can be blessed. I don't know about you, but I want to get in that line. I might actually get in that line twice or three times to be blessed, to be joyful and happy. And so David tells us about this situation. And the first thing he tells us is there is a process to this blessedness. There's a process. What is the process? Well, he tells us right there in verse 1, he says... If you want to be blessed, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of the sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. There's a a process here. Walking, standing, sitting. He's saying this is what the righteous people, those who are blessed, do not do. They don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. I hope as you're looking at this, you see there's a progression here. I remember in high school, some in college, especially the first day on the high school campus, you get there, and and this happens to us as adults, first day at a new job, first day at a new neighborhood. The people that you start gravitating toward or you start walking with, fellowshipping, if I can use a churchy word, hanging out with, those people that you fellowship with, hang out with, and walk with, all of a sudden as you start getting to know them, sometimes after you're walking with them, then you'll stand and you'll have a conversation. And then after you stand a while, you'll get comfortable with those people. And you'll sit down and you'll hang out with those people for a while. Now that's all good if they're the right kind of people. But if they're not the right kind of people, woe unto you. Because you have chosen unwisely. And sometimes that happens in our own lives, even after we get out of school and we grow up. We choose the wrong kind of friends to hang around. Am I saying don't hang around with people unlike you? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this. The Bible says bad uh, company corrupts good morals. If you're hanging out with the wrong kind of people that are not pushing you in the direction that you want to go, it won't take long until you turn into that person. I mean, this is not rocket scientists, this is not brain surgery. I have a lot of students and young people who will talk to me and say, you know, here's the kind of person I want to be when I grow up. Here's the kind of lifestyle I want to have when I grow up. You don't decide when you're going to have that kind of lifestyle at age 30 or 40. You make those decisions when you're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years of age. Which is why, by the way, church family, we put such a heavy emphasis on our children and our teenagers. Because most of us in here, me included, when you get to the 4-0 or beyond, you're pretty much set in your ways. It will take an act of God probably to change your opinion and mine. For some of us, it might take Jesus in the flesh to come down and convince us of something. Hey, I know. My wife reminds me. I'm stubborn. 
But that's why it's so important that we understand the younger that we are and we get, in, get plugged in as young as we can to help us understand this progression. It's not just, by the way, mentally the way we think or physically or emotionally. It's all those things. Billy Graham used to have a statistic years ago, the evangelist Billy Graham. Some of you need to know that name because you don't know it, and that's okay. The evangelist Billy Graham that has perhaps preached the gospel to more people on the face of the planet than ever before used to have this statistic that his ministry did research on that uh, about 5% of people, or excuse me, 95% of people that come to know Jesus do so before they turn 18 years of age. Now let me ask our church a question. Hypothetical, rhetorical question. If you look at our church budget... What's the largest percentage, I don't know the answer by the way, what's the largest percentage of money that we spend on what age group? It doesn't mean that those of us who are older are unimportant, that's not what I'm saying. We are important. I'm grateful that this church considers every age important. From the 100 plus to the less than 100. We're all important. We're all a part of the family of God, the body of Christ. Our young people need to learn from our older people. Our older people need to learn from our young people. But I will tell you that a lot of churches that I know, friends of mine that I know who are pastors, when they tell me about their budget and 2% or 5% of their budget is spent for those under 18, I have to question, do you really care about children and young people? Because if that statistic is true, and actually it's probably higher, because that statistic was from many years ago when the Billy Graham organization did the research, if 95% of people come to Christ before they're 18, then just logically, intellectually... As a sharer of the gospel, the people that I want to go share the gospel with are the people under 18 years of age because they're the most likely people to say yes to Jesus. Doesn't mean the rest of us are important. So David is saying here, if you want to be blessed, there is a process to this blessedness. Now, we can say about about walking or about standing or about sitting that that just has to do with people's behavior. Or maybe we can say, well, that has to do with their thought processes, the way they believe. The righteous and the ungodly should be, should be different in how we, how we think, how we behave, and to whom we belong. But here, here's a challenge as I've been praying about this over the last few years, really, church family. It's this. We may be putting the emphasis in the wrong place, even as the church of Christ. You say, Pastor Jack, what are you saying? I'm saying that a lot of times what we've done and what I experienced growing up in the church is we want people to come into the church and we want them to behave like a believer, like they know Jesus, and after they show that they can behave like a believer, then we'll say, all right, guess what? You belong. That's contrary to what the Word of God teaches Some of us are frustrated because our culture is acting in ways that are ungodly. Why are you frustrated? That's what ungodly people do. They act ungodly. Hello? If it quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, looks like a duck, it's a duck. So that shouldn't frustrate you and I to watch people who don't know God act like they don't know God. What should frustrate you is watching people who say they know God act like they don't know God. 
And in our culture, what David, I believe, is saying here with this progression that's so important even in our church culture, it's not that we want them to behave a certain way and then believe a certain way and then say, guess what, now you belong to the family of God. No, we, we invite those of you, and maybe there's some of you today that say, you know what, I don't know this Jesus. I want to say, guess what, you're at the right spot. You belong here. You're welcome. Which is why this church, the doors of this church will be open to anybody and everybody who believes whatever they want to believe. Doesn't mean they'll be a member of this church, but it means as they come and visit and they get into our fellowship, that's how you get to know who Jesus is. Think about your own testimony for a minute. When I came to Christ, obviously it was because of the Word of God and it was because of the Holy Spirit. Okay, yes, those are, yes, yes, yes. But the way I really surrendered my life to Christ, probably like most of us in this room, you know how I did it? I was watching somebody else. And they befriended me. And they loved me unconditionally. And they said to me, you know what? I love you. You belong. And after I discovered, wow, they love me. I belong. I started watching what they believe. Wow, I hear them saying they believe this. Maybe I need to investigate that. I'm like, you know what? They're right. I started believing. And as I started believing, you know what happens when you start believing the right things? Your behavior changes. Some of us, some of our friends, the reason behavior hasn't changed is they're believing the wrong things. Folks, we're going through a pandemic. Just look, there's a great big illustration right in front of you. What people believe about the pandemic determines how they behave. If they believe we're all going to die, if they believe this is a a virus that's going to overtake the world and kill us all, then their behavior will match that. The world is great at stirring up fear. And culture, I believe, right now in our world, people are looking for a place to belong. And when they find that place to belong, they'll start investigating our beliefs. They'll start looking at what we say we believe. And maybe they'll start believing and they'll start behaving. So lost people aren't going to act like saved folks. Come on. Our relationship, David is saying here, our relationship comes before being obedient. How can I be obedient if I don't know God? I can't. If I don't have the Spirit of God living in me, I can't obey and do the things of God. It's an impossibility. I can change the exterior. And we're so great at that, at changing our exterior, but not so much our interior. So David is reminding us, we we don't, by the way, obey to get this relationship. We obey because we have the relationship. Jesus didn't come, by the way, so he could give us a self-improvement program. Three steps to happiness. Here you go. Three steps to wealth. We're going to talk about that in a minute, too, as we go through, on, through these verses. That's not why he came. He came to radically change our heart and to change our world. So, what else does he say here? Not only this progression, which is interesting. The first thing he says, by the way, is you don't walk in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly. Is that, is that an interesting statement to you did you know that ungodly people have counsel godly people have counsel but ungodly people have counsel here's a question i wrote down you guys know by now i write down things in the on my notes and in the margin the question i wrote down is who is your counsel is your counsel always you if so you're in trouble 
Say, no, well, my counsel is the Word of God. Well, that's great. The Word of God, that's great. But do you have any, do you have any flesh people that have flesh and blood, human people that you can ask for counsel? It's the greatest investment I've made in my own life is finding people who are smarter than me. And there is a lot of people smarter than me. A lot of people. Spiritually thinking. Spiritually speaking, finding people who are smarter than we are. Or, or is it that in our culture, church family, is it in our culture that we don't even value counsel anymore? We don't need godly counsel? Oh, I'll just go on YouTube. I'll just find out the answer to that. I don't even need counsel. And I'll wait to the last minute when I think I need counsel, and then I'll pull it up off the internet. The counsel that we all need is right here in this book. This is the guidebook to life. This is it. Beyond that, it's also spiritual people, godly people that we can put around us. But David is saying, even the ungodly have counsel. So what is our problem? Here's our question. Is our counsel godly or, uncount, or, or ungodly counsel? The righteous man is smart enough to ask for godly counsel. And by the way, to surround himself with godly counsel. Then he says, don't, but don't stand in the path of sinners. He's indicating there's a path, there's a progression, there's a direction. Somebody asked me this question a few months ago. I'm losing some of you. Somebody asked me this question a few months ago. They said, is there more people going to be in heaven or hell? What do you guys think? How many think there are going to be more people in heaven? How many think there's going to be more people in hell? How many people don't know? How many people are hungry? Okay, there was. I actually thought years ago when somebody asked me that question, I thought, there's going to be more people in heaven. God wins, right? God wins. Jesus wins. I know the end of the story. I don't have to wait for a movie. I already know what the end of the book says. Jesus wins, right? That's not what the Bible teaches, though. The Bible says that enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And there will be a lot of people that will go in that direction. But narrow is the way that leads to life. So enter by the narrow gate, Matthew chapter 7. David is trying to warn those that he's writing to, hey, there is a progression. You don't wake up tomorrow morning and decide you're going to leave your family. You don't wake up tomorrow morning and decide, hey, you know what? I want to be an alcoholic. You don't wake up tomorrow and say, hey, I want to have this addiction. You don't wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden, boom, that happens. There is a slow progression of decision making. And I could be a poster child for a lot of those different ways of doing it incorrectly and be a testimony to you and share with you how that has happened in my own life. That there is a progression where the enemy works very, very slowly. I've used the illustration before. Many of you know that if you throw a frog in a bowling pot of water, the frog will jump out of that water as if he has turned into the Jesus frog. And he will walk on water and he'll take flight. But if you put a frog in a lukewarm bowl of water and you gradually turn up the heat the frog will boil itself to death the same thing is true of us in our own lives the the devil knows that he's not going to come up to any of us and tempt us with some great sin because most of us who know jesus would go no but if he gradually gets us to compromise one day a year five years ten years later we'll look back and go how did i get here 
And David is trying to remind us it happens when you are walking in the counsel of the wicked or then you stop and you stand with the sinners or the last thing he says there is you sit in the seat of the scornful. What is a scornful person? A scornful scornful person is one who loves to sit and criticize the people of God and the things of God. That's a scornful person. Here's a question, hard question. Are you scornful? Are you a child of God and yet you're also scornful? Say, Pastor Jack, you mean I can't be critical or I can't have a different opinion? No, you can be critical. You can have a different opinion. That's fine. Being critical or having a different opinion on something is okay. Having a critical spirit is a different thing. And if you find yourself 100% of the time being critical, especially about godly things and church things, dear ma'am, dear sir, I would ask you, you better look at your heart and find out if you know God Almighty. Because that's not the same spirit that should be in you. The Holy Spirit can't be in there, and the scornful spirit being there, always criticizing all the things of God. I know this is hard to hear. I can lie to you, but I'm not going to because that's not me. I'm just telling you what God's Word says. We can't be scornful. He says there, by the way, there's a, there's a path to this happening. You don't just decide you're going to be scornful one day. There's a progression. Church family, I've seen this happen in church life for 30 years. Where somebody will be godly and on fire and they'll wind up hanging around, maybe even, God forbid, maybe even at church on a Sunday morning with a cup of coffee talking to somebody. And the next thing you know, hey, let's go hang out this week. And they're walking around the block together or whatever. And then the next thing they're hanging around drinking coffee or eating a biscuit somewhere. And the next thing you know, the conversation starts doing this. And the next thing you know, those people are out of the church. And you look and go, how did that happen? Because they were a teacher, they were a leader, they were a godly person. The enemy is crafty. If you haven't noticed that yet, look around in our world. The enemy is very crafty. The enemy is more strategic, unfortunately, most of the time than we are in the church. We're getting ready to go to Malawi. We leave tomorrow with our team. Over the last several years, they've had a lot of different challenges in Malawi. As you know, you help financially do some things. They've had cyclones, which is kind of their version of a hurricane. They've had all kinds of things happen. And you know what's very interesting? The number one bottled water company in Malawi, you know what it is? It's owned by the Muslims. So if you find your family in need of water and you're thirsty, come on to the mosque. We'll give you all the water you can take. And we look at that as believers in the real God, believers in Jesus, Christians, and we go, wow, I can't believe they would do that. You know what I say? Wow, how smart, how strategic, how incredibly uh, just, wow. Amazing. And yet we have the living water. But we sometimes get sucked into this progression. David is trying to get our attention and warn us, watch out, watch out, watch out. It's almost like flashing lights because there's a process. But the other thing that he tells us in this psalm is there's a plan. There can be a plan not to go down that road that will lead to hell. There can be a plan not to go down that road that leads to being not blessed. And the plan is this. He says, here's the plan. Verse 2, delight in the law of the Lord. Delight in the law of the Lord. That's what the righteous person does. Delight, meditate. Church family, I'm asking you. Everybody look at me. I'm asking you to hold your pastor and your staff accountable because we're going to hold you accountable on this. If you and I 
only meditate and delight in God's Word on Sunday morning for an hour, you're going to crash and burn spiritually. You are going to crash and burn spiritually. And you wonder why when life is throwing at us at 100 miles an hour, 24-7, 365 days a week, all the ungodliness that is channeling and throwing our way, and some of us wonder why, why is this so difficult? Why can't I make it? Why can't I stand? Let me ask you this person, this question. Are you delighting in the law of the Lord? Are you meditating on it? Are you getting into God's Word? I'm not standing up here as one who has this perfectly figured out. Dare I say, you may be shocked at this, you're probably not because you know I'm flesh and blood too, but there is a day occasionally that goes by that I don't get to open my Bible. That's not a good testimony, by the way. If we're not getting into this word, David is saying, you want to be righteous, you want to be blessed, guess what? Simple answer, here it is, delight and meditate in this book. I love that. Because otherwise it's like, well, God, thanks a lot. All this stuff's coming at me, and there's this process that's just going to take me to destruction and going to ruin my life. It'd be great if you'd supply some kind of answer. And David is saying, he did. It's right here. It's right here. That's what the righteous man does. I love the words that he uses there, too, because he talks about delighting and meditating in. I wrote down these questions for me. Where do I find my greatest delight? How about you? Where do you find your greatest delight? When I ask that question, I'm sure there's some things that came to mind. For some of us, maybe it's food. I know, Krispy Kreme donut, I know. Get that out of your mind. Get that out of your mind. But spiritually speaking, where do you find your greatest delight? Where is your greatest pleasure? When, when he says meditate, that may scare some of us. Because some other religions have taken some biblical ideas from the Bible and they've kind of turned it into their own thing. For example, in Eastern meditation, when you meditate in the Eastern religions, the goal is to empty your mind. Just empty your mind. Just free your mind from all thoughts. Just om, om. I mean, you guys, you know. Empty your mind. That's dangerous, by the way. And some of us can't afford to empty our mind of anything because there's not much up there. But emptying your mind is dangerous because then you open your mind up to all kinds of things, all kinds of evil, all kinds of maybe even demonic spirits that can enter your mind. In Christian meditation, the goal is not to empty your mind. The goal is to fill your mind and my mind with the Word of God, to fill it up, to saturate it to its overflowing, to we're quoting Scripture left and right, front and center. We can't even think without a Scripture verse coming to our mind. That's Christian meditation. And that's what he's talking about. And it can be carefully done as we think about those words that we're reading. I wrote down a question, how often do I read and how often do I meditate on the Word of God? Only Sunday? Only five minutes a day? Well, David tells us what to do. He says, his, the law is in the light of, Lord, of, of the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Only twice. You only have to do it twice, day and night. Day and night. And I need it. Here's the last thing he says to us. There's not only a process and a plan, but he also says there's a result. And I love this. Rest of verse 3 says, here's the result. Here's what happens. If you and I will meditate on God's word day and night, you will be like a tree 
firmly planted by streams of water, which will yield its fruit in season, its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he will prosper. Think about that, that tree. Strong, stable, deeply rooted, fruitful. A leaf that doesn't wither. Not a brown, dead, withering kind of leaf, which is, by the way, is signs of death and dryness, but, but a tree that's firmly planted. Does that, does that describe you? Does that describe me? Like a tree? I think I've shared this story before. It's coming to my mind again. My grandmother, not long after my grandfather passed away, my mom's mom, she was at home by herself. This was a few months after my grandfather passed away, and as I was driving back up to Gardner-Webb, where I went to school for my undergrad, I was driving back through Calpins, where she lived, and I just sensed, you know what, I'm going to go by there and check on my grandmother, so I go by. Back in those days, you didn't lock your doors. Yeah, it's a different world, right? Screen door was open. I knocked on the screen door. She didn't answer. I started panicking a little bit, because a lot of us know, you know, when one elderly spouse dies, the other one sometimes just says, okay, Lord, I'm ready to go. So I didn't know what, I start banging a little louder. She didn't answer. I open the door. I go in, four-room little home. I go through the first little living room, and I'm headed down the narrow hallway to the kitchen, and I'm yelling, Grandma, Grandma, are you here? Are you here? Didn't answer. My heart starts racing a little bit more, like, okay. I get to the kitchen, and the way their back porch kind of wound around, and, and uh, you could look out the kitchen window, and you could see the concrete porch and the concrete steps. And I remember getting to the kitchen and looking through the kitchen window, and as I looked through the kitchen window, there my grandmother sat on the steps. In her lap, was her Bible. And as she was holding that Bible and reading that Bible, tears were streaming down her face, hitting the pages. And she was just rubbing the pages, and I could see she, and she was talking. To this day, she's with the Lord now. She didn't, she didn't know I saw that, but I'm watching, and she's having this conversation. And it wasn't a one-sided conversation. I'm sure God and my grandmother were having a conversation back and forth talking. When I read that verse and I think about people who I know who are like a tree, she's the first one that comes to my mind. Like a tree firmly planted. And when the storms of life came and she lost her husband of many, many years and all the things happened in her life, looking back over her history, she was still standing strong. Most of us know people. Hopefully at least one person in your life you could say that about. I could say that about a lot of people in this room. You faced some tremendous challenges, maybe even challenges over the last year, maybe the last few months. Can I encourage you that many of us in this church family are watching you? And when we see you, not because of you, not because of your strength alone, but because of the strength of Jesus Christ through you. You know what we see? We don't see someone who's weak, maybe someone who's sad, maybe someone who's hurting. You know what we see? A tree firmly planted and life is blowing you around, but the roots are not giving way. Why? Because you're rooted firmly in the Word of God. I don't know about you, but I, I want to be blessed like that. I want that description to be the description of Jack. Am I there yet? No way, Jose. <laughs> I got a long way to go in a short time to get there, bandit. But I'm trying. And I can't do it in my own strength. But he tells us, you will be like a tree, firmly planted, yielding fruit. 
And you know what a tree that yields fruit does? Some of you who are farming, and I've seen your pictures of your tomatoes and cucumbers. I'm coming to your house, by the way. I'm coming to get some of those. I've seen the fruit that God is blessing you with. And you know what the awesome thing is about a tree that's firmly planted? A tree that's firmly planted is strong for itself, but as it gives fruit, you know what it does to give fruit? And why? Because the fruit is for other people. It's a gift of community. By the way, that is really the only biblical reason for church. That is really the only biblical reason for us to gather is the gift of community. It's the gift of what brothers and sisters should do for one another. What God's done in your life, your testimony, sometimes we call it your personal testimony. I just want to tell you, your personal testimony ain't for you. I know that's not proper English. I'm sorry, Miss Maltzby. It's not for you. It's for other people. So let me ask you this question as we wrap up this morning. Do those verses describe you? There's so much more. I encourage you to read the last three verses there because he talks about what happens with the wicked. Maybe you find yourself here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never given your life to Him. Can I just tell you, it's, it's, it's not a formula. It's not knowing, knowing Jesus and walking with, with God, by the way. It's not a religion. Following Jesus is not a religion. Following Jesus is a daily personal relationship with the creator of the world. And when I was a teenager and basically got ready to throw in the towel and walk away from church, it's because I thought following Jesus was a religion. And it was you do these things and you don't do these things. Now there's some guidance in God's word about what to do and not to do. But following Jesus is much more than do's and don'ts. It's about a personal relationship with the living God. That's not religious, that's relationship. And so maybe you're visiting today, maybe you find yourself here and you don't have that relationship. I'm glad you're here. God's glad you're here. And it's very simple. Just just call on him and say, Lord, I want that relationship. And it's basically saying what David outlined for us is to say, God, I am am a sinner. I have have been walking sometimes in the counts of the wicked and standing around and sitting down. And I'm maybe even in the wrong crowd. And those people have influenced me incorrectly. And I need the Holy Spirit of God to come into my life and to guide me. And if that's you this morning, in just a second, we're going to have a closing song. We call it a song of invitation. And the reason we call it a song of invitation, it's not so much that the pastor preacher is inviting you to do something, as it is God Almighty is inviting you to respond to what He has said through His Word. And So maybe today you'd come down and just say, you know what, I want to respond to God's invitation, I need to know Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you'd want to do that, I'd just tell you, those of us who know God and know Christ, we would just be so excited if that's you. For a lot of us who know Jesus, maybe the question is, Do we want to have that kind of life that David described? I do. I'll sign up for that. I want to be blessed. I want to be full of joy. Not just happiness, but joy. And to do that, wow, I've got delight in his word. I've got delight in his word and trust him. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you that you tell us, you remind us, Dozens and dozens and dozens of times that if we want to have life abundant, we want to have life full of joy, we must simply turn to you and delight in you and delight in your word. Thank you that you gave us the answer 
in a world that is so quickly and aggressively pushing us away from the things of God, the truth. I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would help us to know what real truth is. And so I pray for these friends in this room today. If there's anybody here who doesn't know you personally, that doesn't have that relationship with you, Lord, I pray that this morning that they would say yes to you. Whether it's in their seat or whether it's coming down to the front grabbing my hand or the hand of my friend Heath. Lord, you have your way during this time together. For those of us who do know you, maybe we've been challenged and convicted from your word this morning that if we want to face the aggressiveness of our culture, we've got to make sure we are spending the right amount of time delighting in your word. So would you help us to commit to do that? Help us to surrender part of our day to do that. To relinquish our agenda of part of our day to say, okay, God, no, I'm going to make sure I spend time with you and your word. If that's the decision that we need to make this morning, I pray you would challenge us to do that in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask if you would to stand with me. Joey's going to lead us in this song. If you need to make any decision this morning, I'll be down here at the front, and I'm going to ask Heath to come and join me. Let's stand together. We hope you've been challenged and inspired from today's message from Crossroads. You can find out more about the message you have heard today by visiting our website, hope at crossroads.org. If you live in the upstate South Carolina area and you're looking for a church home, we hope you'll come by and visit sometime. Details about our church and service times can also be found online. The last year has been one of chaos and confusion, and we know many have become isolated and lonely. You can get Pastor Jack's new book, The Loneliness Solution, Finding Meaningful Connection in a Disconnected World, a great resource that will help you or you can give to a friend who might be struggling. This resource is also available at hope at crossroads.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.